You're listening to Comedy Central. How's it going? Rock through the town. All right, let's get it, huh? There we go. All right, we got you. Hey, you I'm gonna be fine. I'm not gonna be stuck. Yeah. It's not good or bad. It's stuck is good. I am gonna be stuck. You're a family, so you're good. We got you. I might be stuck right now. That sound that you're hearing is me at a front yard barbecue in Oakland, legally smoking weed like a total pro. (coughs) So here's the deal. Marijuana is now legal in 30 states, including California, where I went for this piece. But I wanted to take a look at the legal weed industry and smoke a progressive spliff to progress, if you will. So I went out to California, and I went there with the network's blessing to legally smoke marijuana. But it does turn out that it's a little more complicated than that. But these highs and lows are what happens when you're out in the road, and that's what this show, Klepper, is all about. It's an opportunity for me to talk a little bit about my favorite topic, myself, and also my crew's favorite topic, which is weed. My crew loves weed. It's kind of all they talk about. It's also a deeper dive into the issues tackled by Klepper, my self-titled docuseries on Comedy Central that you should also be watching. If you haven't seen the show yet, you are late, because this is the last episode of the season. I mean, I don't even know what you're waiting for. You want me to come over to your house and bring a fucking screener? I'll do that. I will. Just give me your address. So take a hit. A big old rip from that bong. We're gonna talk on a podcast. This is Clapper. Weed. Ganja. Mary Jane. For progressives, Kush is 2019's gay marriage. Public acceptance is increasing and its federal legality seems inevitable. Right now, it's legal in some form in 33 states and part of the platform of nearly all of the 347 presidential candidates who can't wait to pull a reverse Bill Clinton. I did it, Ham. <laughs> it was a long time ago. My introduction to The Chronic was from the burned CDs I hid from my parents and the places rappers talked about, like Compton, California. So it is legal, but most people in Compton don't want weed sold in their community. In fact, most cities in California, 80%, don't want recreational weed sold in their communities. So while my relationship to weed looks like this... Extra, extra, smoke all about it. That might be slightly naive. As communities traumatized by aggressive over-policing and racist sentencing from the war on drugs have a different perspective. You think it's a trap? It is a trap. No doubt about it. It is a trap. So welcome to this podcast. I have two incredible guests. I have producer Erica Matson and writer Russ Armstrong. Hi. Hi, Jordan. Let's talk weed, shall we? Oh, yes. Fine. I, I know. <laughs> this is, I, <sighs> full disclosure, if you're listening to this only with your ears, Erica has a marijuana leaf necklace. Yes. And? And. I'm some, guessing socks. Yes, obviously socks. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> weed socks. You are weed obsessed. Thank you so much. You're welcome. <laughs> In a way that I do think was eye-opening for me. What, what, talk to me a little bit about your obsession. Or I think uh, doctors <laughs> might call it an addiction. Yeah. Uh, but it, it goes beyond just the participation in marijuana. Yes, yes. You're culturally interested. It's, it's something that means a lot to you. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that like cannabis is a really interesting uh, topic because it's not just about the plant and, and it has – it's just – 
filled with history. You can kind of link it to anything from commodity to social justice to science to health. Basically, I think it's because I did grow up smoking weed, but never considered myself what a typical stoner was represented as, and that frustrated me. So I thought that the best way to deal with that would be to try and like educate and learn the most. And then I ended up working at a company that allowed me to do some more cannabis journalism because I was working at Vice. Uh, so that was like a cool way also into the world. And also people are so excited to talk about it because for so long you really couldn't. And to have a media platform where people are able to share their stories and start to connect generations that maybe, I don't know, grew up during the war on drugs or grew up when the PR was not great about cannabis. Also, it's really fun to get high. That's what I've heard. <laughs> and Russ, you uh, look like a drug dealer in a Quentin Tarantino film. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm going for like 80s high-end blow. Uh, Erica, can, can I ask you, uh, you say cannabis pretty exclusively, and I call it weed uh, and other things. You use cannabis. I think you told me at one point, marijuana is a racist term, or it has racist origins. Yes. Yeah, completely. Um, it started when Mexicans were coming over after, it was like in the 1920s, uh, and they were bringing cannabis with them. And so a way to stigmatize it was to call it marijuana. And then it started to mm -hmm. infiltrate within the 40s and uh, black communities, jazz. And so as a way to just continue to say, oh, that's those people brought this drug in, marijuana yeah. being a, a racist term. I mean, people still use marijuana. It's it's fine ish. Um, <laughs> if you want to be that person, but if you want to be a good person, you say cannabis weed is also fine too. Yeah. 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 In a nutshell, what is this episode about? It's science. It's weed. <laughs> uh, I think this episode is about looking at where legal cannabis stands in 2019 and particularly when the largest market, which would be California, went online in terms of retail stores uh, in the beginning of 2018. And how do you involve more people who were affected during the war on drugs mostly black and brown communities, uh, to get basically more access into the money that's going to be made from this industry now that it's legal. And guess what? It's a little complicated. There's stories of hope, but there's also a lot of stories of continuing struggle. And I think it was interesting to watch your journey because you did uh, have a, a different um, education level than I did coming into it about <laughs> weed. A story that stood out for me was that uh, in Compton, California, you can't legally buy weed. There was a uh, vote no movement where an overwhelming part of the community it's in the 70%, I believe. Yeah, 71%. 71% voted no against being able to sell cannabis in Compton. And for me, Compton, I equate Compton with Dr. Dre's album, The Chronic. And we started talking about this. I got The Chronic when I was in middle school. And I was I was a teetotaling kid. But, like, this opened up a as a, from a kid in the Midwest. Like, a lot of people growing up in the Midwest, you'd listen to these stories from rap from outside and on the... Uh, on the coast, and it was the first time I heard discussions of this. And so um, it's an overly simplistic uh, point of view of what the city of Compton had been through, but also in the entertainment industry, I know a lot of people who live in Los Angeles, and for the last decade, they've all had back pain and gotten cards that allow them <laughs> to get cannabis wherever they can. And so the fact that you can get cannabis there, for me, has always sort of been an assumption about California. And starting to hear that what this place in Compton, California, and it turns out in most communities in California, you still cannot get legal cannabis. That was like the, the starting point for us with this story. And that's when you start peeling back, okay, literally only like less than, it's like 20% of the cities. And they're big areas like Los Angeles, but... Um, 
yeah, you really have uh, uncovered something, Jordan, which is that weed is complicated. complicated. <laughs> oh, it's so confusing. Um, and so then after that, we went to Oakland because right now in Oakland, California, they've started a social equity program, which is really, I think, progressive and fascinating. And it was an attempt to get more black and brown people who've been affected or just people in general who've been affected by the war on drugs more involved in legalized cannabis by offering essentially like business permits to start cannabis businesses. If you lived in a part of Oakland uh, that had been super over-policed 10 out of the last 20 years, if you've lived there, uh, especially for cannabis crimes. If you've been convicted of a cannabis crime since 1996, or if you make under 80% of the city's median income. And so those were the qualifiers to say, hey, you get to go to the top of the list to to get a cannabis business permit. And so that's why we went to visit our friend. Which, honestly, hearing that story, it was shocking to me. That sounds remarkably progressive. Yeah. Like, uh, as somebody who played a conservative on television, I could see the the back the hairs of the back of my neck go up for conservatives seeing like, oh, there's an economic um, opportunity in California right now, but people who have gone to jail for crimes are essentially cutting the line. And I can see some people are frustrated by that idea that like, oh, these are people who, even though cannabis is legal now in California, people who have been uh, convicted of a crime are able to perhaps get a license before other people are, which I think is a progressive step to try to deal with the history of the war on drugs, which is really compelling to see how that takes place and how effective it is. I think we did find out it is complicated. It, It looked like up close, you see moments of success matched with the difficulties of doing something progressive and how slow progress can be. When it was initially categorized as a drug back in the 30s or whatever, uh, when was it? When oh, <laughs> I mean, you're, on the spot for this. Like, you have to go back to like the marijuana tax law, which was, right. I think, in the late 30s, early 40s. And then you obviously had Reagan and that yeah. level of like war on drugs that Again, it's just an, another excuse to over-police black and brown communities yeah, by saying, like, okay, the, weed now. Yeah, the, um, the, the initial vilification of it was what was unjust. So to remove that vilification of it, I think, isn't – we're not elevating and saying that this thing uh, is now, like, incredible. But we're saying that the previous classification of it was incorrect and wrong and, and incorrectly applied. And I think, like, viewing it from that perspective – I think shifts a lot for me as far as like, are these people jumping the line or are they simply being uh, removed, having the burden that was undue removed from them? Um, but I think like you're you're seeing justice rather than giving someone a leg up. Um, you're seeing equity. How do you make up for something like the war on drugs? You look at Compton who said <clears throat> it obviously affected our community. At least this percentage of the population said we'd rather just keep legal cannabis out of the community for now. Also, there are a lot of complicated rules and taxes and legislative things happening. So maybe until that settles, we'll just say no. We'll just say no. With someone like Virgil, uh, Grant, who was your introduction into Compton, uh, who you wrote around uh, and pointed out cool landmarks and talked about Dr. Dre's album. So where are we at? Dee's Liquor, uh, city of Compton, my dad's liquor store. We still own it. If you uh Listen to uh, Easy e sipping on the 40. Yeah. He gives you directions to this liquor store and uh, tell you what this you is can... W- this is where you get the 40 from. This is where you get the cold 40s from. This is where you can get other things from at the time. You ran Compton? Oh, I ran Compton. When it came to the marijuana? Oh, shit. That Chronic album was inspired by the weed I had in our soul. So you're like... You're an uncredited producer on most of the early Death Row Those records. Those cats were smoking my weed, Purple Kush. That was my Purple Kush Snoop was smoking on. You're his Purple Kush guy? Man, come on, he know that. 
Where can I buy legal weed in Compton? Nowhere. What? Nowhere. He calls himself the, the king. king of Compton weed. Yeah. He said he sold to everybody in Compton. He kind of walked us through what it was like to be a dealer back in the day and that he paid the price for it. And now he is out. And I think that was, he He took us to his store. He has multiple stores in the Los Angeles area, but none in Compton. He wants to own it, a store in Compton. That's part of his frustration. And he was beaming with pride as he took us through. Talk about the blunt. Talk about... Talk about the celebratory blunt. He has a product there that he invented. Yes. yes. Correct? Yes. Uh, you could describe it. Oh, this is a $450 mega blunt. $450 blunt. Weed, shatter, hash. It is a $450 cigar. It is packed with a lot of cannabis. Uh, it has uh, shatter, wax, sauce, all wrapped in one. Slow burn. Nice. Nice. Burns slow. Burns nice. <laughs> Jordan's being presented with it's like the size of this microphone. It's it's massive. And it's, Jordan's it's being tuber. presented this. And I'm in the background being like, oh shit, that is so cool. And Jordan's kind of like, mm, this is cool. I was like, no, it's why would you ever want to smoke that? But if you did, it would be the best. <laughs> That's what, yeah, I, I see all of that stuff. It all looks shiny and fun. And literally the two things I'm drawn to are like, I just want like a little joint that you've already done all the work of rolling it. And if there's any kind of balm that can help my, my brittle feet, then I will take that. All the other stuff is fun. I don't even know what shatter is. But the description of shatter is frightening. Yeah, I, shatter is not normally something that I'm like, oh, I want to put that in my body. <laughs> oh, that's exactly what you want to put in your body. I don't even have time. Oh, you don't. <laughs> I don't even have time to explain it's got why shatter is better. Glass, landmines, <laughs> spikies, burns slow, burns your esophagus. Nice. So with Virgil, he was the guy who was convicted of a cannabis crime. He served six to actually served nine years in total um, in federal prison for it. And he's a resident of Compton, but he can't start a legalized cannabis business. And he thinks that's a bad thing and that it would be helpful for him and other people of his community to be able to have that. What I find interesting is the conversation that happens around it. There's Virgil... He, he makes a very clear point. This is this is something that it's legal, and whether you like it or not, it's an economic opportunity, and we deserve to get it on the ground floor. He also makes the point very clearly. He's like, the demand for cannabis was also built out of community like his. <laughs> is that crazy that you can't get legal weed in Compton? It's crazy, ridiculously crazy, because Compton was the place that everybody came to to get weed back in the day. I was going to say, it's like going to Miami and not getting cocaine or going to any city in Florida not getting mad. Like, he's he's very blunt about it. <laughs> this this was also, from a writing perspective, it was really easy to stumble on too tough, many weed Tough puns. to yeah. stay away from them. Yeah, just incredibly low-hanging fruit. <laughs> really? Those, <laughs> those buds. Yeah. <laughs> Saggy <laughs> branches of weed puns. <laughs> I think our first pass of even putting together voiceovers for the episode, yep. <laughs> it was so laden with uh, marijuana, laced. weed pumps. It was laced with mm -hmm. cannabis puns okay. in a way that was... It really took away from the story. <laughs> it was tough to focus on. It felt like yeah. an email from your dad who had just had his first like weed chocolate and was yeah. like, hold on, let me fire it up. I got him. Here we go. But I think there's there's a big conversation that happens. There, there's the economic opportunity mm -hmm. where some people are like, it's happening whether you like it or not. And so what we need to do is level the field because it's an industry and we need to let people profit from it on an equal playing field. And we also need to help out people who have been disproportionately affected by it. 
I get that argument. Then there's a second argument that becomes, well, what about drugs in a community? We talked to a pastor in, in Compton who was like, I've seen drugs um, destroy our community. Pastor Prince was uh, one of the main figures in the Vote No movement, and he's a pastor in Compton. And we went actually down to the mission uh, in L.A. where he preaches multiple times a week. And he's a man of the community. And I think he's very much a man of God and talks a lot about, um, I think he, he approaches uh, cannabis oftentimes from a, f- a faith-based perspective and feels like it, it muddies the mind. He feels like he talks a lot about the high that you should get is from Jesus. So there's definitely a religious element there as well. But he spoke to, as did the the Vote No campaign in general, spoke to like the community and not wanting that to be a part of the community. And, and also I think of a valid point, he also felt like it was a false promise, that the idea that like you suddenly make it legal in Compton and people can open up businesses, now everything's equal. He's like, I've been down that road before. It's not equal. For black and brown people, uh, this is a, it's, it's a false gift. Compton has had a reputation for too long being uh, hip-hop, uh, drug-infested, gang warfare. We wanted Compton to have a reputation, a different reputation. There's some critics uh, on the other side of the Vote No campaign. It says getting on the ground floor of the legalization movement is one way in which to at least get a seat at the table. It's an illusion of inclusion. Illusion of inclusion. Yes. Like back in high school when people said, oh, you're part of our team, we're cool, and then you realize they had a party last weekend and you weren't invited. Yeah, yeah, You got it. Yeah, I've been on the other side of that illusion before. It's yeah. painful. Virgil would push back and he would say, uh, we did not destroy our community, it was other drugs, right. it was opioids or what have you. And I think that's, a, that's an interesting conversation to have, but you're seeing a lot of people in California not want drugs sold in their neighborhood. When I hear people talk about it, I hear people talk about it from the point of view of like, it's a fun recreational activity that shouldn't be uh, legislated, it should be treated like alcohol. But I also hear people talk about it as a health benefit, and it feels like it's constantly stuck between the two in a way that sometimes I I had trouble listening to both ends of it because you could go into a store and it felt like a party and people are... Uh, partaking in it in a way like they would a glass of bourbon. But then I feel people shutting down when they get nervous because it is something that, like, right now is in a legal gray area in a lot of places, and so they throw out the idea that it's also uh, medicinal and helps people in ways, which obviously there are studies for that, but I think then that muddies the experience. We're like, am I buying Am I buying aspirin? In which case, am I, am I buying oxycodone? Am I buying something that should be treated like uh, I'm dealing with a pharmacist? Or am I buying something that is like Maker's Mark and it should be treated like something I'm going to take and go away with? I mean, in terms of from like a retail perspective, I think you generationally, uh, someone walking into a store who's uh, uh, wants the display to feel more like a jewelry store, more like, you know, okay, I'm not walking into a head shop. But there is still a culture that feels like we helped create this, so why run away from the head shop feel culture? Because that's part of what I'm looking for. So there is a real, like, disparity of where do you want to go. And- I mean, I think we saw Alfonso, Alfonso T. Blunt in mm, Oakland. What a name. Real name. Real name. Real name. Uh, he was the first recipient of the Oakland Equity Program, or was able the first recipient uh, of a license and to open an actual brick and mortar store. And I think, like, talk talk to us a little bit about Tucky. He was a character, and he was so 
He, he was, what, three months into the new store? Yeah, he was able to open up Blunts and More uh, in November of 2018. So he's been open now like four months. Um, and so he was able to do, he was the first person in Oakland to open up a storefront dispensary under Oakland Social Equity Program. He has this big warehouse and you were able to visit it and you were describing when you first walked in, it felt a little bit like, um, kind of like a radio shack mixed with sort of like a Costco vibe to it. <laughs> May have been a radio shack. <laughs> May have been a radio shack. Yeah. But, um, with, Al- with Alfonso, he was great because he's, he's like the Virgil, um, in, in the sense that he got arrested for, uh, selling weed, didn't end up serving time, but was put on like federal probation for five to 10 years, which meant that like, if you were ever with him, you could also be searched by the police. His car could get pulled over. Like, you know, crazy shit. He was arrested for a cannabis crime. Then he applied for the social equity. Now he's able to open up a legalized dispensary as a former, like, drug convicted person, um, which is in his own community. He loves, you know, Tucky loves the fuck out of Oakland. Mm -hmm. He's from there. He's fourth generation. So it's more than just like, yay, I get to open up a dispensary. It's like, I get to do this thing in my community legally that before... I and lots of people that I know were being punished for and thrown behind bars. He like talked about how people used to sell to on the streets are like coming into his shop now. So this is the first store opened under the equity program? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. January 31st, 2018 is when they had the lottery. It was uh, 66 applicants, 36 made it through, and that's how we got into the bingo chamber thing. Throw a bingo ball in the chamber, roll it around. If your ball got picked, you lost. The last four balls won. We won, uh, one of the last four, and we we're the first one to open out of that. Don't you think you're taking a spot from a Stanford grad who's a hedge fund vice president and now he can't open his sixth business? His bad. Stanford wasn't grinding on these streets of Oakland and going to jail for selling weed and doing all that. He just seen a, a lucrative company, a lucrative market, and want to jump in. You can totally see why he was successful before this was legal. It was like, I would want to buy yep. weed from Tucky. Honestly, it was great. We went, we went to the, the block party. It was his grandmother's house. It was right across from where he actually was arrested mm-hmm. a decade earlier. Um, I met a lot of people who are supporters of the business, have been for years, proud of him. Like, it was, it was a great community feeling there to see, like, a success story. Especially where you were, or where we were in Oakland, which was on East 80th. Mm-hmm. Um, and that part of Oakland has just so historically been screwed over mm-hmm. by over-policing. And so here's a guy celebrating his legalized business right right across the street from where he got busted for doing the same thing. Um, Rubbing it in the face of those pigs. Yeah, <laughs> taking it on down. That was, and that's like, I think he's the success story that you want, but I think what we found when we kept digging into this was that unfortunately at the moment, he's kind of the only one that's, being or is seeing a little little bit of success from this program. Yeah, is- it, 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 we we then jump to Raven, uh, who is struggling, who is able to. Um, uh, she she has a delivery service, um, and it's difficult. I think like the the regulations that she's under. Um, not everybody is able to get a brick and mortar. Uh, that yeah. process is slow. It's it's very hard. There's a lottery system, and financially, it's hard to have that much capital. I think what like uh, Jordan, can can you describe Raven's business situation? Yeah. So Raven and her husband have a small uh, cannabis delivery service. They essentially work out of an old shipping container that is in the green zone. Uh, we were brought into it. It's it's a giant factory, and inside this factory, there are multiple shipping containers. Some of the shipping containers are, they've been refabbed to, there's some that are literally for carpentry businesses, but a decent amount of them were for cannabis businesses. And we found that because of the green zone, which is a limited area in Oakland where you can have 
cannabis and sell cannabis. Um, so people have to have a home space. Like she can't, Raven couldn't keep, one of the regulations is you can't keep cannabis in your home if you are a seller of it. And so there's a lot of regulations as somebody who is delivering to people and there's a lot of delivery services. There's regulations about keeping it in your car. You can't just keep your product at your home. You have to have an outside space that is in with, within the green zone. And even inside the uh, shipping container, there has to be a wall between where you can do business in the shipping container and where you actually are holding the cannabis. It's a business. There's going to be regulations. But uh, you see her having to uh, go through a lot of different hoops. We went out on a few deliveries with her, um, her and her husband. And it was great, actually, to meet the people who need that. So we're officially on a drug deal right now. I mean, you can call it that. But yeah, it's like we're delivering chocolate-covered espresso beans. Don't make it so, so uncool. Like, like, or an electric I mean, car delivering a chocolate-covered like, espresso beans. Do you right. think this is what Ronald Reagan was afraid of? I think this is exactly, I mean, honestly, for real. <laughs> <laughs> the cannabis plant is a gift to the earth, for lack of a better term. All of the negativity and uh, bad feelings around cannabis is really based on racism and lack of education and the powers that be trying to keep the status quo. And so that's why I stay in the industry, because this is really stressful. This is just a job. This is uh, about social justice. Exactly, exactly. So this is Miss Tucson's house right here. Miss Tucson, she was amazing. She met Raven at her church. And the church, which I love this story, the church welcomed in um, uh, some cannabis retailers, partially because I think for medicinal usage, it was like, and I, and I think, honestly, that was really heartwarming to see. It was like, a lot of people need relief. She needed relief from anxiety, if I recall. And and a lot of medication isn't working and or too expensive and like was put in contact with Raven. You actually met it was at church? Yes. My doctor gave a seminar at St. Columbus Catholic Church. She wanted to do a seminar on cannabis. Yeah. And so they were one of the speakers there, you know, showing their products and everything. And they were like a startup, like a black company. And so I really want to support an African-American business. Do you find with, with marijuana, have you found there's a stigma? So I was never interested in illegal drugs. I work for the Department of Corrections. Mm -hmm. And I would see people coming in on drug charges and all that. And that's marijuana, you know, you would get a lot of time for that. Yeah, and see with the dispensary, that's when I kind of started seeing cannabis in a more positive light. Miss T found that weed gave her a relief from her depression and anxiety. It also gave her a higher calling. I like to, you know, get my cannabis, then I sit down in my Bible and I get all this insight. Mm. Yes, yeah. I, I wish somebody in the Bay Area would start a stoner Bible study. You might be on something. I'm looking at the founder right yeah, now. Like Advertise on Craigslist. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's see who'll come on out. If you replace the Bible with like a like a Philip Roth novel, that's exactly what I do when I uh, when I get high. Uh, I, ex I experience a lot of uh, just don't read Portnoy's complaint. Hi, but it was it was an amazing story. Like I think it was very hu it was a human story where I think it's very easy to be like, oh drugs, oh people just want to get high and party. It was like Miss Tucson is dealing with anxiety. She's connecting to the community. She's investing in her community, and she's doing it also as like a religious experience yeah. uh, to like better herself. Which I. I feel like that that sort of highlights another one of these loops that you see. Uh, Eric, I think what you said initially about like the intersectional nature of cannabis is is something that like we kept being drawn to. And <laughs> just the notion of like, why do you need to smoke weed? Well, uh, it's an anti-anxiety medication for me. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know if we should give your community weed. We would rather uh, traumatize you with policing for years. Anyways, what was the result of that? You're anxious because of that? Uh, like it, it, 
it loops back in on itself continually. If we if we were just like listen to the people who are requesting the need for that, um, sometimes you find that the answer is like less complicated than you think. It's like, oh, you've been traumatized for decades. I get why you would need this medicine. Let's let's provide it in your area. Let's let's make it accessible. But I don't think it's a miracle drug. I think that people use that as an excuse a lot to try and get more um, things, I don't know, passed. Uh, because, yeah, there's you can abuse anything. So I, there has to be um, – you don't want kids, obviously, to be smoking weed. Just kidding. Well, I mean, I think you're looking at three kids right now yeah. who probably smoked weed. <laughs> Erica, can I ask you a question? Oh, yes. You were on a shoot with I'm Jordan. I'm not high. Oh, sorry. What? <laughs> <laughs> Great uh, follow-up. Um, uh, you were on a shoot with Jordan, uh, who is your boss. Uh, part of your job in this shoot, I think, was to get him high. Yes. Um, how do you plan around a work day when you are uh, <laughs> planning on getting your talent high? Uh, when do you schedule that? How did you go about that? Thank you so much for asking. Sure. Um, it was a really, that was the most difficult part of the job, um, <laughs> was figuring out how to dose Jordan appropriately. <laughs> you weighed him? Yes, I weighed him something and measured in his, his body fat. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was like, have you drank enough water today? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or an edibles guy? Um, yes, because I actually have done shoots before where we got the talent too high too early. And um, it's not like an... It's not like you just keep going up. Right, right, right. You kind of just keep chilling out. We'd, a lot more to be fun, a lot yeah. more fun to, to be on yourself than to watch someone who's high for four hours yeah. uh, just be incoherent. Um, yeah, how did you go about that day? We would wait till the end of the day, and then I would take Jordan to a park, and then we would get high, and then he would run around, and then we would listen to Wings. We did listen to a lot of Wings. Yeah. Woo. What, uh, what did, did you get? What did you guys smoke? Did you do edibles, pre rolls, blunts? Pre rolls. You you end up really liking the pre rolls. I think mm-hmm. edibles. Oof, I don't know if you haven't really smoked a lot of weed. I don't recommend doing. I smoked a. I, I've been held occasionally. Edibles are they don't always sit super well with me. I, yeah. At the end of the days, you would be like, I think we should get the shot where we. Uh, we smoke a little bit. It'll be, you know, it'll be fun. We need the lighthearted moments here. We need to see you experiencing uh, the culture, be a part of the weed culture, um, which I, when I smoke, I tend to get fairly paranoid. And so, like, the idea of that and then adding a camera is a scary idea. Uh, we had a lot of fun, though, in the car. So much fun. Once you dealt with the the big parts of the day, we were like, we also have the ability in telling a story that is about Weed, you have the ability to have some fun with some of the visuals. So we even went out into the middle of a state park, if I recall, and tried to set up a drone shot where we sent uh, a joint up in a drone yes. that would, would <laughs> see the entire city and come down, and I would pull the joint off of the drone and smoke it. Uh, and so we spent we spent an hour trying <laughs> so to get that shot. So much time. It's so much time. It Sorry, didn't I work. Think that was my idea. <laughs> Sorry about it that. It didn't really work. It was so cool to try that old couple that walked past us with their dogs. Mm-hmm. And they're like, what are you doing? We're like, mm, definitely not having a drone deliver a, a joint to the I this like that old couple wasn't hired. You were um, very pleasant after um, inhaling and yeah. holding it and exhaling. Um, I remember we had a, like some lists of stuff we wanted to capture, and then you smoked like a little bit, and then you're like, I think we got it. I think we got all the things we need for today. I was like, we haven't even started yet. You become real chill. Yeah, it's like, oh, we got all the coverage we Honestly, need. Honestly, we're going to go? Let's just go. <laughs> it's most, That's me covering the internal paranoia of like, I think we have it. I should get to my hotel room so I don't freak yeah. out. Uh, yeah, let's just go back. Hey, well, you going to chill? All right, I'm going to just go. I'm going to lie down for a second, go to my hotel room, listen a little bit to Wings, chill out, yeah. <laughs> and then be okay for the next day. Yeah. <laughs> you know a lot about this subject. You've covered it. Here, you've covered it when you worked at Vice. <laughs> but going out there, what were you surprised by? You know, what I was surprised by is that even though this program is 
frustrating a lot of people is like um, seemingly not, I don't know, as successful as people want it to be, that the the people who are involved and invested in it are, want it to succeed. Even though Raven might have to shut down in July because she's being overtaxed, she's being overregulated, it's really hard to just like break into this and was promised that it would be easy. She's like, it is so much better doing this than the way it was before, which was when it was illegal, because in that situation, you do have issues with enforcement and policing. And so what she actually brought up and introduced because of all of this, which I thought was interesting. Okay, so if your legalized market is suffering, how do you make it not suffer? Uh, you either have to enforce the regulations that um, are driving up the illegal market because people are leaving the legal market and going and buying weed illegally again because the prices are high and it's there's just not enough shops. So. The bigger surprise, I think, is that maybe we're looking at a potential war on drugs 2.0 because if you want, if you are the state and you want your businesses to succeed, but you don't want to cut your taxes because you're excited by the revenue you're getting from them, which is in California, they have like 20% taxes, and then there's another 15% locally, so you're paying like 40% more in taxes than you should be. You then have to step in and start enforcing. Uh, shutting down illegal shops and not like raids. I mean, sometimes, but you'll slap them with like a tax thing. Oh, you've been evading right. taxes. So, oh, you still don't have the money to pay for them. Okay, now we'll put you behind bars. So it won't look necessarily the same as what the war on drugs is looking like in the 80s with, um, you know, that kind of policing. It's just a different way of driving um, enforcement back to the illegal market, which I thought was the war interesting. on tax evasion. War on tax evasion, point. yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I thought was interesting, uh, what, what was Virgil's take on that? Oh, yeah. So everybody that we had talked to who was from the legalized market was like, oh, yeah, kind of like, uh, we understand the black market, but come on, guys. Uh, Virgil was very hardcore, like, no, I do not understand people who don't want to make an attempt to go to the legalized market. I did it. We're all pushing for this. And, and the fact that you still remain on the illegal market is ultimately just going to hurt everyone. And I think hearing that from him led us to seek out this guy named Chip Moore, who is in Oakland, and he is part of a community that still services... Um, in the illegal market, AKA he like may, may or may not run events in which people come and sell and buy at um, not, you know, not on the legal market at, because they're not being taxed. But there are people who are legally selling marijuana here in Oakland who are getting priced out because people, instead of buying legal weed, are going underground and buying weed. Uh, that sounds like an excuse to me. Um, we're here in the most competitive cannabis market in the world. Because people can't afford to purchase legal cannabis in Oakland. But it's about changing the system. It's about granting access. It's about being an advocate for the people. So you become a voice of the people. Has the people's voice always been so gravelly and sexy? Not at all. This comes with decades and decades of being a cannabis enthusiast. <laughs> the black market's still going strong. I don't know. Allegedly, what did you hear? I, I, I heard this might be the place to be. I don't know. For me, I know that this is a great place where all my friends and family come to communicate about our world. These are big events, allegedly. Yeah, I was definitely surprised to know that these things are kind of happening out there. And in talking to Chip and talking to, to people, like people really, in it, that felt like the community that even you described to me about like uh, cannabis is a culture and it's a culture of like artisans and people who come together and are trying to help in ways that feels 
less like a Mac store and more like a um, uh, like a like an ar- ar- artisanal quilt store. Yeah. <laughs> and I think like and it felt like oh I can see what is really appealing about this. I can see where like there's artistry brought into this. There's friendships. There's small business and hustle. And that is still out there in the open. And you can see where you almost want the legal market to begin to feel like that. But that is now being essentially counter programming to what is the legal market. I guess when we zoom back, the larger question we also had as well. Many other states are looking at California. They're looking at Oakland. They're looking at the equity program. And they're wondering, is this effective? New York is looking at this right now to say, like, is this effective? If we legalize cannabis in New York, is there a way in which we can we can also look at uh, the way in which the war on drugs affected communities? And is there a way we can legalize cannabis and help address that? I think the jury's still out. I don't know. What, what do you think? Um you know, because I think someone could ask themselves, well, okay, I maybe understand why black and brown people and communities would need like a quote leg up uh, because of how they've been affected by the war on drugs. But like, is there anyone making money and legalized cannabis, which I think might be the bigger question. And so, yes, the taxation is really high. So the only companies that are able to make money are ones that are big and have been established before. And like, that's why we went to visit NUG, which is a giant uh, vertically integrated company. You are at NUG headquarters in Oakland, California. NUG. NUG is big cannabis. They're like Amazon, if Amazon paid taxes. NUG is a vertically integrated cannabis company. We provide high quality cannabis products at affordable prices to almost everybody in California. Which means that from seed to sale, they have business investments. So they grow the weed, they uh, cultivate it, they manufacture the on site with a really cool weed science lab that creates things like shatter. Um, and nice. <laughs> nice. It's pretty sick. You know, yeah, it's two white guys that own this company. We're not trying to say, oh, you know, that's the reason why they're more successful, but they had a different way into the market. They were involved in science lab testing in Colorado like 10 years ago. So they were able to see a market, start building contacts, collecting and and making an industry so that when they were starting in California, they can afford to pay the 40% in taxes. Someone like Raven, someone like Alfonso, someone like Virgil, they are starting so low because they've had to come out of the shadows, essentially, and start the business now. And that's just really tough to compete with. Nug is not a bad guy. I bet the big box squares at Nug don't even know about the equity program. In Oakland, there's a social justice program to uh, provide opportunities in the cannabis business for people who have been previously persecuted by the war on drugs. Okay, they know what it is, but I'm sure they don't participate in it. We participate in that program, and we have six different groups that we're working with, and we're providing them greenhouse space, Then they'll be in there for about three years. Three years. Mm-hmm. That's cool. How is the equity program turning out here in Oakland? It's slow to go, and I'm a huge supporter of the program. I would just like to see maybe the, the regulations eased a little bit so that we can have this happen more quickly. Fine. Damn it. Maybe Nug isn't the bad guy. One thing we asked them was, do you see yourselves as activists? And they said, no, we're, we're businessmen. And I can't fault them for it. Of course, it's a business. And then when we talked to Raven, she's also a businesswoman, and she's very clear about that, but she's also an activist. And she's, she feels like you have to be. To me, the moment clicked when she said that, where it was like, oh, she has to have two jobs. 
And I think that's the difficulty of a lot of the people who've been affected by the war on drugs and some of these smaller businesses as they move into this field. This is why I smoke so much weed, Jordan. It's just too much. <laughs> this is a problem that we can smoke our way out of. Yes. Ooh, I like that tagline. It looks like you're also setting yourself up to do yet another episode on cannabis. Oh, no, because my arm. I only have so many necklaces. If, <laughs> if you were to close this episode, it's like, I don't know, I think it's pretty much solved, you would not get to do another weed episode. So <laughs> no, makes, exactly. I don't know. Uh, still a lot of loose ends. Yeah. Still a lot of loose ends. <laughs> kind of like a cross joint. You got to like just light it. Is that a real side. thing? That's, oh, Jordan, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Are you at all worried about the loss of cool? Like part, part of what it was interesting about cannabis, I would say there's the after effects, sure, but also the transgressive nature. I no think longer contraband, yeah. It's no longer contraband. Once you're doing something that's transgressive, there's an inherent cool yeah. in that. Will you lose that? I personally will never lose that cool, but <laughs> other people might. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's... <laughs> we laughed a little bit at Nug. They were very kind and oh, nice there. God. Yeah, but they're so what? nerdy in like a weird way about yeah. it. And you're like, uh, yeah, and like you're like a middle-aged business guy now who's like, like check out my dank buds. You're like, oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are you... dank. They're pretty cool. Yeah, you and Brad got cool dank buds. <laughs> yeah, very, cool. very cool. But yes. His name, um, his name was Brad. You're not... His, his actual name was Brad, right? It's so funny. I'm worried about using the word Brad as a pejorative right now. It I is. think I we we met a lot of lovely people at Nug. There was a Brad there. Total. No, Brad. you'll lose. This is the sacrifice. You're going to lose some of the cool because you need to in order to get more people to come online and like see it in a certain way. And then it's an opportunity to like rebrand the cool with cool businesses like Black and Brown owned businesses who are able to like take culture and say, okay, now that it's legal here, I'm going to take it into the next phase of of where it should be instead of. Um, but yeah, you're gonna lose some of the cool. Well, it's kind of like you a... did an episode on weed. We've already obviously <laughs> lost. Oh some no! Of the is this? I said it. Oh my god! <laughs> Sorry, we are the pin in the butterfly. Because... This, this was the oh, pin in the butterfly. No. We just we killed weed. <laughs> yeah, it's over. If you like listening to this podcast, you're gonna like watching it even more. So go check out Clepper. It's on all of your devices, including your television. Go check it out. Thank you for listening. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.